Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. Welcome to Thought Leadership Studio, episode 24. I'm your host, Chris McNeil, and this episode is about the seven aspects of the peak performance state. How to attain and apply the ideal state for strategic thought leadership with the Chafee Method. And what this episode will do for you is it'll define the ideal state for strategic thought leadership and other areas of high performance. Help you better recognize how attuned you are to that state, teach you methods for accessing and amplifying that state, and help you discover how to connect that state, how to hitch it up to your goals to your audience for both your own performance and for positively influencing others. So in defining the peak performance state, there is an optimum state of mind that's common to high performance in fields as loosely related as sports, business, science, mysticism, and the arts even. And architects of human performance like sports psychologists, and neuro-linguistic programmers have studied the state and discovered it's got definable characteristics. And in this podcast episode, I'm going to describe the state in more detail as part of giving you methods for tuning to it, accessing it, amplifying it, putting it where you want. Now, to give you a little history, part of what got me interested in the mental side of performance was my involvement in athletics, which had me getting introduced to the field of sports psychology, which led to me working with a sports psychologist who'd actually worked with two U.S. Olympic teams. And I learned that the mental game in athletics was at least as, if not more important, than physical aspects. Now, he used what was called an Ericksonian hypnotherapy model. So since Milton Erickson was one of the major models of early neuro-linguistic programming, It was also a perfect introduction for me to NLP, a field I'd later get deeply immersed in and become a master practitioner and use it regularly now with coaching, consulting, and building structured models of marketing using structured language. And so it's the mental game that separates the leaders. You You know, in sports, genetics, of course, are part of success. If you're three feet tall, you're not likely to succeed at basketball. But once you're in an approximate range of the right genetics for a particular sport, then it's the mental side that makes the difference. It's the grace under pressure, like Joe Montana showed in the 1988 Super Bowl. They brought San Francisco from behind in its final moments, cool, calm, collected, but in the zone, completely focused, totally confident. It's the ability to draw upon reserves, hidden reserves perhaps, a focus, discipline and motivation 
and apply them towards step-by-step -step increases in performance or in complete breakthroughs in creatively designing out-of-the-frame, out-of-the-box methods for going beyond what could be achieved within the prior frame of performance achievement. So those are the two paths of performance enhancement. Optimization, getting better within a certain frame, within a certain model. And innovation, redesigning the model. And you should use both. But one of the things I've learned through luminaries like Charles Garfield, uh, who wrote the book Peak Performance, you know, applying sports psychology to athletics. And Peak Performance, applying performance psychology to business. And Richard Bandler and John Grinder, the two co-founders of NLP. And I found that the field of NLP, of neurolinguistic programming, had even more promise in some ways than that of sports psychology, because at the time, sports psychology was a branch of psychology, the one that I knew of, that focused on generative change, improving performance beyond the norm, rather than remedial change of fixing problems. And typical psychology would study problems. One of the reasons I liked the model of NLP better was it said that, well, if you study problems, you just know how to replicate the problems. You have to study the high performers to know how to get the high performance. And you have to study people who used to have the problems and solve them to learn the patterns that are going to be successful at problem solving if you're working on it from that side. And but what this episode is about is generative change. By learning to elicit and apply the peak performance state of mind that's common to high performance in the science, the arts, athletics, and business. A common state that has these definable characteristics. Thought Leadership Studio. So one way to understand and be able to better access the peak performance state is to name seven characteristics of it, which are number one, confident. Number two, highly energized. Number three, aware. Number four, in control. Number five, focused. Number six, inspired. And number seven, empathetic. So let's zoom in on the characteristics of each. Number one is confident. The athletes in their best performances, the salespeople in their best performances, exhibit a high state of confidence. The sense that you have the ability, you have the capacity to do whatever it is that you need to do. The second characteristic is highly energized. A sense of high energy, of having more physical, mental, and emotional energy than you even need to address all the tasks at hand and take all the steps necessary to achieve whatever it is that you intend. The third aspect is awareness. 
And this might be best understood by its application in sports because it is situation dependent, but the common factor is being centered in the here and now, not thinking about what you're gonna do after a performance, not what you're gonna do later today or what you did yesterday, but being immersed in the here and now. And there's what some might call the cocoon of concentration, a very narrow, more internal field of awareness that is applies especially to solo activities or solo sports like long distance running, where the runner might need to be intensely aware so they can self-monitor and self-regulate their own physiology in this narrow field of awareness. But like in a team sport or like in a large business event, like speaking to an audience, you want to have a more broad, expanded field of awareness. But in every case, it's being aware acutely of the sensory experience of the here and now, free from the interference of the rational mind, with a silent or near silent internal dialogue so that you're very externally focused or internally focused on the sensory experience rather than self-talk. Next characteristic, in control. So then there's a sense of being in control and directing your mind and body to do specifically what you want to do at each point in time. And working with an organization, feeling the sense of control, isn't so much about controlling other people, but controlling your response to other people, and to best work with system dynamics to nudge the system in the direction that you want it to go. Next characteristic is focused. Having your attention fully centered on your goal, in the direction you're going, and what you're doing right now to achieve it. And that's the opposite of multitasking, where your focus is very diffused. This is getting in a state of focused immersion, undistracted. And that's a discipline that's extremely valuable in today's world of multiple ongoing distractions, like with social media, if you have not yet learned to have kind of a controller part who lets you go as deep into social media as you should, but then have an interrupt program to snap you out of it at the right time so you don't get sucked down into rabbit holes when you should be being productive with something else. Next characteristic, inspired. Inspiration. And a lot of these other attributes are about getting in the right state to accomplish something that's predetermined, but the inspiration includes the creativity to envision better futures than you might otherwise have thought of. Almost like a state of divine guidance, a state of having a higher purpose beyond yourself that draws you forward to make positive contributions, which is tied into the last of the seven characteristics, being empathetic, being attuned to the response of others that you impact, being able to see things from their eyes, feel things from their position, and have a sensitivity to those that you lead emotionally, mentally, and physically. So just understanding what these characteristics of confidence, high energy, awareness, in control, focused, inspired, and empathic, knowing what these are is helpful, but then how do you get more of this and apply it where you want it? at the level that you choose. 
And the starting point might be what some call anchoring in NLP by eliciting a time, remembering a time when you felt really confident, highly energized, focused, in control, and the other characteristics, and stepping back into those times. So an NLP practitioner might ask someone, do you remember a time when you were very confident? When you felt like you could just achieve anything? When you're highly energized? When you're fully aware and immersed in the moment? Or those perfect days, perhaps? And when you also were sensitive to those around you and empathic and you had this deep sense of inspiration. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you could step back fully into that time and see what you were seeing, hear what you were hearing and feel what you were feeling so that you're reliving the experience, seeing it out from your own eyes, holding your body the same way, breathing the same way, fully getting the state back, turning the brightness of the image brighter, the picture larger, the sounds louder, so you're fully immersed in it. And then imagine what it'd be like to have this state amplified and focused on each steps of your goals and transferring what you want to transfer of this to your audience to lead them to a better emotional state. Now, we used to use this in a fitness training context in the studios I had. And, you know, using, we use a, a self-assessment scale where we just ask people at the end of a work, hey, rate yourself on a scale. We used a one to five scale in that case, confidence, focus, high energy. And, and using such an internal self-assessment state management scale might seem unusual to some people in a context where we're led to expect somebody's just there to show up count reps for them, get somebody to be accountable to training and maybe optimize the workouts. But I never saw things that way. Back before there was such a prevalent use, at least, of the term thought leadership, I like to believe I was practicing it by reframing the role of the fitness trainer to be that of optimizing performance, not just with nutrition and exercise, but by enhancing mental performance by drawing from fields like NLP and sports psychology. It was a game of increasing and directing motivation and of reinforcing the development of healthier behaviors, which required, in many cases, changing beliefs, shifting identity, this kind of higher level change. And trained my trainers in all the locations to do this, and it was very powerful. And figure since you have time with a person, especially since part of this time is spent with them just on some cardiovascular equipment when you're free to talk a bit, this time could be utilized to help them optimize their state. Focus and to maximize performance in this session and 
in the time between sessions by future pacing, applying this to whatever healthier lifestyle changes happen to do with not just nutrition, but rest and relaxation and all the habits of optimum health. So the trainer's role became that of facilitating optimum mental performance. It's perhaps the greatest leverage point for optimizing physical performance. And many of these things became incorporated into performance enhancement software. Both the wireless workout that predated smartphones, we used handheld computers. Uh, this was a few years before Apple introduced the iPhone. And for FitPoint, an online gamification of fitness to make tracking progress visual and even more reinforcing. And it was the National Innovation Awards, these motivational apps won, that gave me the leverage and the stepping stones to move into software after I sold the studios to give it my full focus. But one way to use the scale is to rate yourself on the scale immediately following a performance or a business day like the trainers did with the clients and then ask yourself, where was I on a scale of 1 to 10? And this will help you gain more control. Self-observation leads to self-regulation, so that you can direct it higher on the scale intentionally. And this was part of the system in the fitness training students. This is part of the system so that after every training session, the trainer asks the client, give me a rating for confidence, for focus, for high energy, for in control. And some clients would take the time to go inside and ask themselves and to think about it. Imagine, you know, what would a 10 be like? What would it would be like? So they calibrate internally. And by imagining what a TID would be like, they gain the ability to direct themselves closer to it. Now, some would just say, hey, give me all fours, give me all threes. They didn't engage as much, but he said it still helped. And about one in 25 people just thought it was too woo. And after the trainer, you know, just say, hey, just rate me, you know. But that was one out of 25. So at least there's a little bit of an external feedback loop, even for them, with the trainer feeding it back. And it looks like you're four or three, correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm guessing if you're one of those one out of 25 people who doesn't yet value the power of controlling and directing your subjective experience to increase your performance, you're not likely to be listening to this podcast. And yeah, there's a few people that complain and what so on, so just stop doing it as an experiment. And the very next time that client came in, he said, what happened to the scale? It helped me focus. I felt like I got more out of it. So it came back and it stayed with it as part of the system, became part of the software and became part of the thought process of strategic thought leadership in the sense that we're doing some state design because persuasion has to happen emotionally. People make decisions predicated on emotion. Yes, they have to support it logically. So you got two concurrent tracks, but the state path design is really important. So 
Skills and persuasion, strategic thought leadership, is largely about emotional leadership. No matter how strong your logical arguments, they won't hold the power of the better feelings that leading people to. Given people make decisions largely unconsciously and largely based on better feelings or the expectation of better feelings, and they just need that logical component again to support it. So hence the building blocks of strategic thought leadership providing a model of logical structure that undermines old thinking and supports new thinking along with a state path from old feelings to new better feelings because you can use this chafey tool to also design the better feelings your audience will experience when they fully embrace your model contrasted with the old way of thinking and isn't the best internal the best intrinsic reward of leadership the feeling of uplifting others as you enrich their lives thought leadership studio So this is not really new stuff. Let me quote from an essay by William James, the father of modern psychology and philosopher, called The Energies of Men. I wish to spend this hour on one conception of functional psychology, a conception never once mentioned or heard of in laboratory circles, but used perhaps more than any other by common practical men. I mean the conception of the amount of energy available for running one's mental and moral operations by. Practically everyone knows in his own person the difference between the days when the tide of this energy is high in him and those when it is low. Though no one knows exactly what reality the term energy covers when used here or what its tides tensions and levels are in themselves. This vagueness is probably the reason why our scientific psychologists ignore the conception altogether. It undoubtedly connects itself with the energies of the nervous system, but it presents fluctuations that cannot be easily translated into neural terms. It offers itself as the notion of a quantity, but its ebbs and floods produce extraordinarily qualitative results to have its level raised is the most important thing that can happen to a man. Yet, in all my reading, I know of no single page or paragraph of a scientific psychology book in which it receives mention. The psychologists have left it to be treated by the moralist and mind cures of doctors exclusively. Everyone is familiar with the phenomenon of feeling more or less alive on different days. Everyone knows on any given day that there are energies slumbering in him which the incitements of that day do not call forth, but which he might display if these were greater. Most of us feel as if we lived habitually with a sort of cloud weighing on us below our highest notch of clearness and discernment sureness in reasoning, or firmness in deciding. Compared 
with what we ought to be, we're only half awake. Our fires are damped, our drafts are checked. We are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. In some persons, the sense of being cut off from the rightful resources is extreme. And then we get the formidable neurasthenic and psychasthenic conditions with life grown into one tissue of impossibilities that the medical books describe. Unquote. So what Williams James was describing was something like the phenomenon of the second wind. And he goes on to talk about it. And I quote again, the existence of reservoirs of energy that habitually are not tapped is most familiar to us in the phenomenon of second wind. Ordinarily we stop when we meet the first effective layer, so to call it, of fatigue. We have then walked, played, or worked enough and desist. That amount of fatigue is an efficacious obstruction on this side of which our usual life is cast. But if an unusual necessity forces us to press onward, a surprising thing occurs. The fatigue gets worse up to a certain critical point when gradually or suddenly it passes away and we are fresher than before. We have evidently tapped a level of new energy masked until then by the fatigue obstacle usually obeyed. There may be layer after layer of this experience, a third and a fourth wind may supervene. Mental activity shows the phenomenon as well as physical and in exceptional cases we may find beyond the very extremity of fatigue distress amounts of ease and power that we never dreamed ourselves to own, sources of strength habitually not taxed at all, because habitually we never push through the obstruction, never pass those early critical points." Unquote. So what William James was talking about was ways to access what some have called hidden human reserves, untapped potential. So what are some of these ways that we could use this chafing model to do that with? possible method. Remember I was talking about working with a sports psychologist who had worked with two U.S. Olympic teams? One of the methods he taught me was to hold in my mind's eye a meter from 1 to 10 for what we called activation level. 
And just before doing something like a set of squats with 400 pounds, I would turn the meter up in my mind's eye. And maybe if it started something like a four or a five, kind of normal. As it went to a six and a seven and higher, every number went up. I would feel my focus narrowing to what I was about to do. I would feel my muscle tension rising. I'd feel my breath deepening and getting quicker, my energy rising. So I'd hit a peak as I brought it to a 10 and then put all that energy into the set. But then as soon as I was done, turn it back down to relax and optimize recovery between the sets as a both a performance optimization and an energy management system. This worked extremely well to the point where, you know, I still work out. I don't hold a meter in my mind's eye consciously, but now it's internalized. I automatically feel my energy rising and my focus nearing. So I've programmed my unconscious to do that. And then the question becomes, how would things be different if you could hold in your mind's eye a meter from one to 10, a control panel for confidence, high energy, awareness, in control, focus, inspiration, and empathy, and turn each one up to the optimum amount and then aim it at exactly who you want to positively influence, maybe designing a state for them because, of course, you have to go there first when you're doing state leadership like this, when you're crossing state lines, so to speak. there are coaches who kind of act like direct hypnotist and there's nothing wrong with this method it can be extremely effective and they'll directly tell someone that I expect you to be extremely confident to raise your confidence level to raise your energy level physically emotionally mentally to be extremely aware of the here and now to put your cocoon of concentration around exactly what you want to have your awareness on, to feel totally in control of your mind and body, directing it to do exactly what you want to do at each point in time, to be incredibly focused on your goals, on your audience's goals, on where you're leading your audience, to feel inspired to lead from the heart and feel empathetic and in tune with your audience. 
But there's also the method of indirect suggestion, where you don't directly tell someone these things because by indirectly just discussing it as if you're talking about someone else, as if you're just discussing someone that, say, a hypnotist would program to have such a meter in their mind's eye, but it would be for all of these factors. And they could turn up their confidence, they could turn up their energy level, and turn up their awareness. So these become internal anchors, and all they have to do after a little practice is to think about exactly the state they want to direct themselves towards. They would do it, you know, bypassing this by doing it hypnotically, directly to the unconscious mind, rather than communicating to the conscious mind. And yet, the conscious and unconscious are, in a sense, linguistic constructs, in the sense that, you know, you're left little toe. You didn't notice it before I mentioned that, and now you're conscious of it, so your conscious mind went to that. Now, Milton Erickson, father of modern hypnotherapy, was exquisite at separating the conscious and unconscious mind so he could communicate directly with the unconscious and therefore bypass conscious resistance, bypass someone's limiting belief systems or the limiting identity which otherwise might have prevented him from saying, I'm programming your unconscious mind to go into this high performance state when you want to. And there's just a method of using a scale. So on the episode page, now if you're listening to this on thoughtleadershipstudio.com, hey, you're on the right page, look down a little bit. If you're listening to this on Apple or Stitcher or another podcast app, There is a link in the episode description to the page for this episode. Or just find thoughtleadershipstudio.com and click on podcast. It'll take you to the podcast episode pages. If this is the current podcast, it'll be the most recent one. And on that, I'm putting a PDF with a couple of exercises. So you could just use it to think back to a time when you were highly confident, highly focused, in control, oh, you had all these factors maxed out. Step back in that time, relive it, and use the scale to calibrate by rating yourself on a scale of one to 10. And even if it's an eight or a seven, by calibrating it, you tune in to what it would feel like to be at a 10. And that begs the question of how things would be different if you could raise all of these factors of confidence energy, awareness, in control, focused, inspiration, and empathy to attend every single day. Focused on where you're taking your audience. Focused on what you want to accomplish. How would things be different if you could do that? That's the kind of question that brings up. So just exercise, I'll put it, I'll put it there in the PDF which will be close to the normal offers that I put on the episode page of the free download of the Marketer's Guide to Strategic Thought Leadership, which if you don't have it yet, you want to get it because it will help you start to assemble the building blocks of strategic thought leadership. There is a structure to large-scale positive influence. And if we're not implementing such a structure for large-scale positive influence, then all this content marketing, all this social media stuff we do, is just going to get lost in the herd. You want to get heard instead by having a message that 
resonates by connecting to the higher values of your audience and leading them to new and proprietary, unique, differentiated models that you invent that give them more of what's important to them. And if you're in a place of leverage where you can benefit from a quantum leap in your performance in strategic thought leadership or your organization's marketing performance utilizing strategic thought leadership i'm offering a free 30-minute thought leadership discovery meeting hey let's just brainstorm no pressure if it's a fit great we'll talk about it but it'd be great just to learn about what you're working on and to share some of the insights i can offer for my training in nlp design human engineering all these other things that I've picked up over decades of both coaching and marketing and system design experience. So in any case, thanks again for listening. This is Chris McNeil with Thought Leadership Studio, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thought Leadership Studio.